Hi, this is Chandra Brigman, and you're listening to Live from the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. The following panel discussion took place at our Defense Innovation Night at Venture Cafe Cambridge. The panel discusses the role of government labs in defense innovation. To find out more about our Defense Innovation Program, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org slash Defense Inno. So um, it's hard to believe, but uh, this is the last event of a series of eight that we had at the Venture Cafe. Starting in 2018, we had four events uh, per year. And uh, the series is called, as you hear, or you saw in the, um, the notes and the post, is Defense Innovation at Startup Speed. And um, so today, what I wanted to do, first of all, I wanted to thank our amazing panelists. Um, you know, it's a very busy time of the year, so there are a lot of events. So um, I really want to thank the panelists to uh, be available to be here tonight. And I hope that the audience is as excited as me to have uh, this panel here because we have here the most innovative minds in the Boston defense space. I want you to give up. You, you will see when we'll learn what activity they, they're leading. So I'm not exaggerating, I have no doubts. So um, a little bit of uh, background. So as I say, this is de defense innovation at startup speed. Why did, um, so when I started this, uh, this series, wh why did, did I call it that way? So we want to do a, a number of things. So one is accelerate innovation in defense. So technology development for national security. And if you think about, uh, it's not because we can't do it. Large corporation, we have a lot of facilities, we have resources, we have really smart employees. National laboratories, same thing. So it's not that we cannot innovate. We have innovated for years and we have um, done well. The point is that the speed of innovation worldwide is uh, increasing. And so we have to keep up with that speed. So um, in order to keep up, to stay ahead, we have to run really fast. And so what we're trying to do, leverage other resources, which is startups. And um, in a way, we want to uh, leverage their fast pace, creativity, um, entrepreneurship, diversity, all this quality, and especially you know, the fast movement in technology development that large corporation and government labs have a hard time following for a number of reasons. So, um, so what we want to do is to help startups succeed, help startups become our suppliers. And this, as a, as a consequence, as well, will also help the innovation ecosystem and it will um, foster a better economy locally and nationally. So the being part of an innovation ecosystem means to help the whole community. So this year, what we focus on four events and each event was on one of the members of the innovation ecosystem. So the first one was venture capital investors. So this is a new resource, a new um, type of uh, partner that we're collaborating with in the defense world. Accelerators and incubator. There are some of our friends from Mass, Mass Challenge here in Techstars. 
government, so we had an event, and then today, university and government labs. So when we had these events for each uh, player, we, um, we discussed how can system integrator like BE system work efficiently, effectively with each one of the players. Because the goal is to facilitate rapid innovation, technology transfer, and increase our mission um, capabilities for our customer. And again, the all benefit comes from the all innovation ecosystem as a, as a uh, economic growth. So I'm gonna stop talking about this now and we go to the questions to the panel. So um, I would like to start asking each member of the panel to introduce yourself, your affiliation, your role in the innovation uh, defense space, and what are the initiatives you are engaged in, and what support do you need from all the innovation ecosystem, all the ecosystem, for you to succeed? You want to start, Bernadette? Sure. Um, Thank you. Uh, my name is Bernadette Johnson. I work at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. How many folks here know anything about MIT Lincoln Lab? Okay, fair amount. Well, often when I give these kind of talks, I learn that people don't appreciate that MIT runs a billion dollar laboratory for the Defense Department, and they have since shortly after World War II. MIT runs this as a public service, no fee whatsoever, and we have been very fortunate over the years to have that automatic partnership with a university that I think we heard further examples of earlier today. So we produce uh, prototypes to support our defense needs, our defense department needs. We get a lot of the base ideas from MIT and other universities, so I think that, that affiliation is pretty good. And we transition our technology to, for the most part, the, prime the primes who are actually executing the programs of record for the DOD. So where's the problem? Um, it's actually kind of interesting. We heard about many elements of this sort of pipeline in the course of the evening, and I think part of the problem is it's not a pipeline, it's more like a, a pretzel. Uh, we need to imagine that there isn't, you know, brilliant idea, light bulb goes off here, and Warfighter has capability here, and there is some kind of linear progression. That just doesn't happen. And part of the problem is that the time scales along that evolutionary path are, are mismatched, and that's one of the reasons we're talking about trying to do things at the speed of business or in more innovatively. So we see, as an F a federally funded research and development center, that's what Lincoln is, we see this entire uh, success and problems in kind of miniature to what the Defense Department places, uh, sees in general. Our primary transition partner, as I said, is industry or direct into operational use. Our feed corn is really our university affiliations and increasingly our engagements with small and non-traditional companies. So that brings to what are we doing, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. We didn't have until last year an Office of Technology Transfer at all. So that shows you how important it was to us. Uh, as part of MIT, we use MIT's licensing office, but we didn't have any strategic thoughts about tech transfer. And I was fortunate to do a, a two-year stint at Defense Innovation Unit when it was still experimental. And when I came back from that assignment, we started a new office called uh, Technology Ventures. And that's what Lincoln is doing now. And one of the primary missions of that office is to expand our engagement 
with uh, small and medium and non-traditional companies really to help us solve the problems for the DOD. So we're bringing more of them in to help us do our research and helping them at that earlier stages contribute to the development that feeds that later capabilities. So I'll leave that for, for intros now. Thanks. Great. Um, my name is Matthew Korea. Um, I work at uh, Natick Soldier Center right down the uh, road, about uh, 30 miles uh, west of here. And our role is really on the organic multi-operation domain for the small unit. What does that mean? That means all the soldiers, all the equipment that they wear, all the equipment that they fall from the sky from, all the equipment that they land safely, the sensors on the battlefield, the integration of all that equipment, as well as the sustenance that they eat. So that's our role. My part of that equation is I have two roles. One is what they call the acquisition career manager. Um, there's 25 of us across the country for the Army, and we're all congressionally appointed. We all work for the three-star. So we're this special group that goes around and works with the talent pipeline within the universities, as well as we do the competency development within those uh, our current uh, workforce, and we get training, and we get uh, policy statements with them. And then we also get this competency with the equipment. So the new equipment that's uh, bought doesn't have to be resident within our organization. And I've been testing that uh, within Natick. So a lot of our equipment is over at the Costa Center. We just put in a small UAV test wind tunnel there that we have the ability to go in and use at any one point in time. So we did the capital investment of $800,000 for this piece of equipment. We get priority placement. We get to use it first. But we also get it off the network. So anything, and I think someone talked about cyber, anything that we want to put on ITAR compliance or any of the other security measures, we can pull it off them, their network, bring our own little micro network and actually do all the testing there, and then plug it back in and let the Costa Center actually use that piece of equipment, maintain the pieces of equipment, and actually use it for their other customers. Uh, we've also deployed this at UMass Lowell. We do it at Tufts, NC State, and Drexel. We have other partners that we do this. So what, the, what does that do? That, I think a lot of people have already talked about that today. It's not, just not being a relationship with a PowerPoint. It's having these equities, that a shared equity, that you maintain collectively and you can use and breed together and learn new uh, competence areas together. Um, the other role I have is what they call the enterprise integrator. And in that role, we look across the entire portfolio at Natick, as well as other areas like ARL, and we start pulling pieces in, uh, and we do requirements with the user community. And then from there, we actually put it into a manufacturing initiative. So a lot of things that Julie talked about, um, there's nine um, federally funded manufacturing institutes for the Army, uh, excuse me, for the DOD. Um, we are partnered with three of them very heavily. Um, I think Julie mentioned the uh, AFOA, the ARM, as well as the Netflix. Um, total across those entities is $2.8 billion. So that, that's, that's a pretty heavy number, right? So it was strategically decided that those activities would be with a university-led activity to kind of breed this manufacturing in the design to unit production cost metrics that go with there as well as capitalize on all of the networks that were already formed in some of these universities with Johnson & Johnson, with Raytheon, all these other pieces, and then bring the, the network that the Army had together and make this a much larger ecosystem. So two networks 
to collaborate in activities and then bring it together in an ecosystem to bring things to bear much quicker and much more effectively and much more cost resilient with a manufacturing base beside it. And that's, that's my role at NAM. Okay, um, Charlene Stokes. Uh, my latest role is I've just recently joined Army Research Lab. I'm up at Ar ARL Northeast, located at the Costas Center. Great facility. Um, really enjoying it there. And again, for everything that Peter highlighted, actually, was, it's just been a phenomenal um, institute up there that we've we've been able to be a part of. Um, but what I'll I will go back and say that I am at just base, we'll just say a defense scientist, focused very much at the basic research level. So 6162, um, manage those kind of dollars for those of you that are familiar, but essentially a university academic minded scientist, again, that very public domain focus. So again, really excited about this topic to be um, getting more traction. Um, I'll say that, uh, again, Air Force Research Lab prior to joining the Army and a short stint with um, an FFRDC. So similar to Lincoln Labs getting that kind of experience um, with, with the MITRE Corporation. Um, I've been in the Boston area, although my base was um, in Ohio, I've been in the Boston area since 2010. Um, and really trying to push forward this whole idea of innovation within the R&D labs. Fortunate to meet a lot of different people in the area, but what I didn't see until here recently, I would say in the last year, um, is, is the incorporation of that more fundamental research, right, within the innov innovation ecosystem. We focus a lot, and there's been tremendous strides on acquisition of the higher TRL, and that's critical and important, but where I didn't see the part being played and what I very explicitly was interested in from my perspective and what I'm doing with ARL now as well is how do we tie in that fundamental research? We fund a ton of universities, but where are they transitioning that technology out of the universities and beyond? And same with scientists such as myself within all the government service labs. I love this. Um, I, I have to assume this is thanks to Bernadette. Um, the defense laboratories, I know it's small, but again, um, this is on um, a website. The defense laboratories across the nation, are the, the reach that they have is just tremendous, right? And a lot of that is, is more on the applied level, but also the <laughs> time off. <laughs> the, uh, the more fundamental research, such as the universities. And I think we need to, she has a really hard job. <laughs> she really does, I have to say. Don't play with um, and again, really excited to see this topic getting a little bit more attention and I, I really like what the engine is doing as well and bringing in some of the more fundamental science aspects. And I think that's kind of what's missing within the community, right? Um, again, where do we bridge that entire ecosystem? And, and I really like, Francesca, something that you said as well on our prep call um, in terms of of again, where are the, so it's not that we all kind of all, all of a sudden started, you know, this look at the startup companies and, and now the defense contractors go to the wayside. No, I think what we're missing is that big part, um, bridging that gap, right, of how do we get from 6-1 or basic science, pulling it out of the universities and cycling it all the way through. I don't think we can just all of a sudden focus on the, the smaller companies or even the academic research, which again, still needs to be pulled in a little bit better, I think, than what it currently is. Uh, but then again, what is that tapping into that entire ecosystem and leveraging the strengths of each? Um, so I'm really excited to, to hopefully be a part of that with for the Army, but again, just seeing and being out here and connected with folks such as yourselves and having these conversa conversations, I think, is really cool.
Well, good evening, guys. I'm Laz. How many guys have I not met here, here yet? Don't, don't know who I am, man. There's been a couple around. Guys, I'm Laz, and uh, here's why you should care. What I'm about to talk to you about <laughs> is something brand new. What you're witnessing is my Air Force being honest with itself. So in May, there was an agreement that was signed from our previous Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson, and the president of MIT to do something that my Air Force has just been absolutely terrible about, which is partnering with best of breed when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning. So we are doing something I have never seen in 20 plus years of service. I'm an active colonel, and this is the greatest time to be an airman ever. You're seeing this renaissance going on. So what I want to do is I'm going to give you three reasons. Uh, my most important reason is you have a couple of my airmen in the room, and I'm going to embarrass them, but because I'm super proud of them. Uh, Dave, stand up. Dave is, if you've seen that television show, JAG, uh, has nothing on Dave. Absolutely not. Dave is an active JAG, but he's been a JAG that served with DARPA. He's been a JAG that served with Special Operations Command. Uh, and if you've seen something about the Space Force thing that kind of happens in the movies or, TV, you know, the news, whatever, um, he's the Air Force JAG that was involved with protecting that name uh, so that we have it. Um, he is my JAG. He is assigned here to the Air Force AI Tech Accelerator. I just wanted him to meet you. He goes by Stitch. <laughs> Sometimes we call him Snitch, but it's really Stitch. That's JAG. Al, stand up. A lot of you guys know me from my time in AFWorks. Uh, one of the things that we royally messed up in AFWorks is we did not have the enlisted perspective. Well, now we do with this. So Al's a tech sergeant, U.S. Air Force, comes from a cyber background. Uh, unique in the sense that he just got coming off, he just got done coming off of what we call education with industry, where he served with Cisco. Uh, so we went through, these are all by name requested airmen uh, that are physically here from the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. So Al, he goes by snacks, uh, supremely, supremely intelligent guy. I just wanted you to see him. And then right next to him is Ms. Ronisha, Ronisha Carter, Captain Carter. Uh, again, cyber background, uh, spectacular background, prior enlisted, now an officer. Uh, she came here, again, another education with industry, but served with VMware out in Silicon Valley. And so now she's here. So I have seven more of these, right? We're going to be at full strength by the end of January. I bring that up to say that one of the areas that we have messed up is that all y'all are super intelligent. Uh, what we've been lacking for a long time is having real, no kidding, operators that can provide some context and help you shape these things. They're here. We live over in Beaverworks here on MIT campus. We work with Bernadette's folks up at the lab. Um, this is a resource that's available to you. That's reason number one why you should care. Uh, reason two. Uh, how many guys, uh, entrepreneurs, startups kind of guys? Uh, where do we got a couple here? Uh, university affiliation, small business, like all the above? Okay, so here's something I've almost never said in my entire time serving in the U.S. Air Force. I have money and lots of it, right? You have to help me spend this. Uh, so if there's one thing, I mean, Julie and I were chatting a little bit earlier. Uh, no kidding, uh, if there's one thing that I could need from this room is really great ideas because I have an abundance of cash that is specifically dedicated for university teams and small businesses. Again, that's something we worked a lot on in AFWorks. It's running full tilt boogie. We just got done doing an AI machine learning uh, thing in the last round where we're probably going to award somewhere about 70 to 80, and we're going to do that by Thanksgiving. There's another round coming up in January. Uh, so be a part of that, right? 
help us spend this money. I am not kidding. If we don't spend it, standard government rules, it goes away, and I don't want that to happen. Uh, the third piece that I'll give you is we have a partnership now with, with MIT. That's about a $15 million a year thing for the next five years. Uh, we can talk about it a little bit deeper, but we've gone through a number of different projects that we're doing with, with MIT, specifically about advancing the AI ecosystem in a lot of different areas. Humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, something near and dear to my heart as a fighter pilot was having, no kidding, R2-D2 in the cockpit, which is something we've never had, and that's something we're working on with MIT, a whole series of different things. Uh, the third piece I'll give you as to why you should care, uh, again, I'm called LAZ for a reason. It's short for Lazarus. I've told my airmen this a lot, which is, uh, that the reason I got that name is because I almost died in my airplane because there was a technology that was available out in the private sector that my Air Force did not logistically integrate onboard the airplane and it would have saved my life. The only reason I'm here is that I got lucky. So if I feel passionate about this is because that story gets repeated in all of my airmen's lives uh, and replicated across the entire US Air Force every single day of just things that shouldn't be that way, but we're trying to fix it. That's why we're in this, this renaissance. Um, last piece I'll give you, and I'm derelict in doing this, CK is one of my uh, guys also on the MIT side. He's on the MIT side, but he's basically adopted into our airman team as our German airman, if you will. So CK, again, that's, that's right, that's right. So he, he likes to play with the lights. But no kidding, if, if I could leave you with anything, it's that. It's that we got lots of money. We've got airmen, which we've never had here before. Uh, serving as a director, I'm super passionate just based on what happened to me, and I know that happens to a lot of folks. So we'll go to questions, because I know we're running a little bit over, but uh, just wanted to introduce myself. Well, just uh, very quickly, so you said you have the money and the, and the startup should apply. Yep. What type of um, contract or what type of, how do they apply for that? Is that an SBIR type? Is yeah. that an OTA? How does it work? Yes. How is it called if we do a search online? So we do it via the open topic SBIRs, which is a radically new concept. Uh, we work directly for Dr. Roper, by the way. I don't answer the 9,000 different layers of bureaucracy in the Pentagon. I was adamant that we don't do that because in the world of innovation, we got to go fast. So we work directly for Dr. Roper. Under Dr. Roper, we've built something in AFWorks that we are essentially calling like Blue Ventures. It's a, it's a way where we've taken that SBIR and that STTR, which is the university version of that, and we've turned it completely upside down. So, if, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Dr. Roper is the, uh, he's what we call our Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition. If you've ever seen him, he looks like Doogie Hauser. He's like 20 years old, PhD from Oxford, and has completely and totally reinvigorated my US Air Force with respect to how do we go about faster. He talks about the speed of relevance, and just Google, you'll, you'll see him all over the place. Spectacular guy. Um, but to answer your question, Francesca, it's an open topic SBIR and STTR, which very briefly, how we've revamped that is all the paperwork that you used to have to do for that stuff, gone, right? So if you had applied for SBIRs in previous years, this is not that, very, very different. The same thing that you would use to pitch to venture capital in terms of pitch decks or whatever, that's the same thing we want to see as the US Air Force. Uh, really, all that we really care, and I just got done grading like 130 of these things last week, um, all that I really care, almost imagine it like the Thomas Edison model, right? Uh, if you have research, but that research can be applied directly to help an airman's life, and that has everything from moving, I mean, from one spot to another, that's a royal pain for airmen. People get so wrapped around the axle about missiles and bombs and whatever, it's nothing like that at all. Um, there are so many problems, low-hanging fruit that are in the Air Force that we go after with these SBIR programs. Uh, so the next one comes open in, uh, should be late January, early February timeframe. Uh, we go quick. 
right? Periods of performance are like three months or so. Grants are in the 25 to 50 to start with, but then rapidly escalate once you get into phase two, where we'll do two to one matches, four to one matches beyond. So again, we can come, 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 come talk to me later. Excellent, thank you. So since the, one of the topic is universities, I want to go back and uh, talk about the changes that happened within universities. So when I was a graduate student at MIT 20 years ago, um, I remember everybody wanted to become a professor. We, we had this dream, everybody wanted. Now you go to MIT <coughs> and you talk to the student and everybody wants to start a company. Everybody wants to be a CEO. So, um, so the function of university really shifted into creating some spin-off and uh, with IP licenses. So how do you see this cultural shift of university towards this startup culture? And what implication does it have on the ecosystem? We have talked about this a, a little bit, but I wanted to hear your, your side, your opinion. So, um, Charlene. Um, so, so again, I, I think to, to what I was discussing earlier, I think that's happening more and more these days. And again, mentioning the engines very specifically geared toward that. Um, I think what's happening in terms of recognizing the speed, speed of relevance, if you will, of ev everything. I think the students are recognizing that as well. Our children are recognizing that and they're coming up and wanting to have that impact and seeing the world moving at such a rapid pace. And I think um, we just have to follow their lead, honestly, at this point and realize that we need to start incorporating things and faster. Um, over at a different event today, somebody had the, um, a, a great quote, and I'm, I'm not sure if he got it from somewhere else, um, but we're, li we're linear beings in an exponential world. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, right? And it describes how I think the universities in particular um, is, is a great source of, as traditionally being more on the linear side, if you will, and kind of slower progression in our ivory towers, <laughs> but again, with these, this exponential world that we face today, we can't do that anymore. And more and more um, governments are recognizing it, Air Force is doing great at recognizing it, and, and again, the more that we can start pulling from that um, sector is critical. Yeah, very briefly, so again, this is a renaissance. Five years ago, you would never see the US Air Force agree to embed airmen full time, right? This is their 100% job uh, to come here to a place like MIT and be in the Cambridge ecosystem. Uh, the best way I can describe it, Francesca, is roughly for AI machine learning kind of stuff, you can imagine about roughly every six months, there's a generational leap in terms of twice the ability of the algorithms, et cetera, right? Six months after that, it's twice as fast as what it was at six months. So my beloved Raptor, my you know, great airplane, but that took decades to field. When it, was, when it took its first test flight, I was a freshman in high school. And then by the time I flew it, I had been serving in the Air Force for 14, 15 years, right? It's kind of ridiculous for that level. So if I take that AI machine learning curve where it's growing that quick and I apply it to our normal acquisition timeline schedules, we're talking about generations 60, 128 generations old artificial intelligence that we would be trying to field, uh, which to me would be like trying to field a World War I biplane nowadays, right? And thumping our chest about how great we did when in reality it's not really true. So which, again, when I say radical honesty, I'm, I'm being dead serious. I've never seen my Air Force be so completely honest with itself that if it stays to its own way of doing business, we will be completely irrelevant and that we need to partner with, with universities to get after this. So um, 
the, the next question is about uh, transitions. And so ultimately, large military systems are developed by prime contractors. But to shorten the tech uh, transfer integration time, we need to be involved really since the early stage of potential suppliers' product development. We call it left shift in the, in the uh, system. So w where do you see the role of system integrator in the context of the new approach adopted by the DOD to work with non-traditional suppliers and their OTA, so the other transaction? Technology to us, right? So, uh, all right. Uh, so, so let me we see. We can have math first, if you, so <laughs> you can think about math. No, I want to comment on it. No, no, I, I'm fine. Okay. Um, so, I think there's just so many elements to that particular yeah. question. So, yes, the primes are the primary system integrators, and they are the ones that are in fact developing and building the final systems that go into operation. Uh, they're being fed by prototype development in laboratories, defense laboratories in general, who are in turn being fed by an idea stream in universities and a support network, uh, to your point, in the small, medium, and increasingly non-traditional companies. So how is it working, and how are we going to do better? Well, one thing is the whole darn process takes too long. So figure seven to 10 years from that, that if, if we're good. And factor in uh, acquisition palm cycles of another five years. So I think what we're seeing to the earlier points of what adversaries have capability, uh, access to, we need to uh, accelerate this entire process. One way is to figure out how do we engage with the primes who are gonna get the technology anyway back at the early stage and work together in some kind of mosh pit of, uh, of laboratories and startups and, and non-traditionals. Um, and so this is the heretical thought. Uh, we often would like to do that at Lincoln Laboratory, but we don't give the technology to a, an, an industry partner until a government person tells us to. And that is so as to maintain our objectivity and unbiased. And we keep saying, why don't we form consortia of those folks of the defense industrial base and get them in early in the game at the fundamental technology development so they can actually influence the designs to make them more manufacturable? Because I promise you, we're not good at that part. So that's one option I really do. We're, we're talking about it and we meet so much resistance because at a fundamental level, there are profits to be had and secrets to be kept. But the earliest engagement we can get with the big industry to the small companies supply and feed chain and, and maybe using the labs as system integrators is actually gonna really affect this acceleration. And then I'll say one last thing quickly. We recognize in the labs that uh, we are not entrepreneurially minded at all. Most of us have no background whatsoever in, in understanding even what um, you know, a series A round of funding is or any of those things that might help facilitate the, the you know, release of technologies. So we have been relying on something the NSF started called i -Corps. I don't know if you're familiar with the Innovation Corps program. <laughs> they, MIT now has customized a variant of that and they're coming out twice a year running 10 and 12 week courses so that we as scientists can learn how to make things that are actually going to be useful in the real world, which is how that whole thing started. Uh, I, it's, it's back to my pretzel analogy before. A lot more of us have to be talking to each other at various stages and mixing this, this little soup all together if we really want to achieve the ultimate goal, which is speed. Yeah, so um, a lot of things have been said today about like these 
vehicles or these contracting mechanisms. And I think that's the underlying pen, pinning behavioral change that the DOD needs to happen. So these OTAs, these new transactions, if we write them broad enough, they will allow us to do these quick, minimal viable products, get people working together, collaborate early on, and then actually test some things out in a safe environment. And you'll see the DOD right now, we're standing up these test facilities in non-traditional places. And I'm gonna pick on one called Thunderstorm. Um, Thunderstorm is in New York City. It's part of a uh, facility that has um, about five-story buildings as well as a subterranean uh, activity. That really replicates where we believe we will be fighting by 2028 or sooner. So we're actually standing up these experimentational venues that you can actually participate bring your equipment to, integrate with a bigger lab, and actually see how these work, and actually demonstrate proof of concepts very quickly and get funded at those activities very rapidly. That's I think, is gonna be more prevalent as we start seeing these things up. I've been working with the state of Massachusetts to try and set up some of these other test venues locally to try and get these types of activities where the Army will fight and, um, and how we will behave. We're actually doing these te these teasers to actually get the minds the minds eye around that, and uh, those contract vehicles as well. Look at those contract vehicles. Keep your eyes open on the broad agency announcements, the RFIs, um, and all those other things that are out there. Because once those vehicles are established, then that funding pipeline will continue to stream to you. So. Um, that means that we are going to accept a little failure in that, right? So we, ha we have to be a little more experimental, yep. try things that are risky, because from our side as prime contractor, we want never to provide something that doesn't work, because right. that would ru ruin our, our yeah. um, future program. But the problem is that when you do something really new, there is a risk that it doesn't work. Right. Otherwise, if you don't go over you know, your, your little secure boundary, that means you're not doing something really, really innovative. Right. So you're saying that we're going to accept a little more experimental and little, um, so that can be a little failure, but we try again. Right? Yeah, as a group, right? So um, I went old school and I brought some uh, some uh, slides over here, some posters, but we, we don't have to use them. But um, what, it, what it really gets after is the Army modernization strategy. If you look at it, right, it, it really gets after Two things from top down. One is it really harkens on figure two to this interfacing between all the academics, the DOE labs, and the chief of staff of the Army, or Futures Command, actually wrote that in. And someone in this room actually helped this develop that, Mr. Walsh. So I, we tip our cap to you to actually put that in part of the modernization strategy and actually drive that home. Um, so it's, it's actually a culture that's embraced at Futures Command. And if you look at the Army, they're not in uniform all the time anymore. They're in these um, you know, clothes just like us, and they're trying to get away from the hierarchical nature and actually take risks and listen to everybody. Um, the 75th Innovation Command, uh, right, Colonel Corsetti, it's right over there. They're part of the new uh, group. I did come with an old posse, too. <laughs> 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 So we're the army. Like yep. story, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So there we go. This is he healthy competition. Yeah. 
So, but no, we, we will accept risk. We want, we want to take these bleeding edge technologies. And actually, what we want to do is, in the next couple of years, we want to pull all this stuff out that's been, that's been fermenting and, and put it aside for a little bit and actually put it to different applications. Um, just the other, just the last two days, uh, Julie hosted us, I think she made mention of it, at um, 110 Canal at our incubator place. Um, we sent out a data call. Uh, there was 50 uh, invites that went out. I think we had uh, 150 people show up. We had user community. We had um, we had the U.S. SOCOM. We had uh, Big Army there. Uh, we had people getting direct influence right from the user communities. We had the requirements. We had the end product users and the, the S&T. Industry, small and big. We'll probably do two more of these events next calendar year. One at the CASA Center on UAV and another one on medical, probably at the WPI. Um, so keep Keep your eyes open for those. Um, everything that we do there is open source, so you can actually take a look at what we're doing. Uh, we have some videos and everything else that will be published, and uh, just get a mind's eye where we're, we're trying to get after. Thank you. So I'm going to break protocols of all the, the initiative we have. I want uh, Ron Corsetti to talk about his initiative, because this is also new. You're not part of the panel, but I like you to <laughs> Uh, All right, a little, a little fair time. I like it. So, so what the 75th Innovation Command's really about is talent. Uh, two times the citizen, maybe it's a slogan you've heard, but we have tremendous talent that has served on, on the active force, that, that decides to get out, that are grad students. I've seen a couple of them in here. Um, and, and we need to keep them in the force as they progress through their civilian careers to accelerate what goes on for, for defense innovation. So we're recruiting them in. They, they live in these ecosystems. They're part of it. They're not somebody in uniform or you know, this, this thing you, this, this persona you see in movies. They're, they're that person working next to you. They know the struggles. They might be accountable for P&L. They, they understand. They're allocentric in their thinking across a broad set of communities. And, uh, and we bring them in to walk the two worlds and, and accelerate through presence in, and an enduring presence, really, in, in these communities. It's, it's really that simple. So we're organized uh, across the United States right now in 23 cities. We, uh, at full capacity, will probably be about 700 people. We're nascent right now. We have a chief innovation office where we have experts uh, in various portfolios like AI or autonomy. And uh, one of our missions is to do engagements within the Army to accelerate problem solving and define a pathway towards the future. The second mission is to be engaged out here in this community to uh, assist you in pathfinding into the Army to help us solve problems find ways to get funding for great ideas and bring those ideas and technology back into the Army. It's that simple. I live here in the Boston metro area. Um, I've got uh, Colonel Jackie Morton here with me. She runs a UARC up at University of Alaska. Um, she's doing our university engagement and uh, just came on board, so I won't put her on the spot uh, to, to explain exactly what we're doing on that front. Um, but we have grad students at, at Harvard, MIT. We have uh, CEOs. We have venture capitalists. Um, it, it's extensive. And we're looking to employ 
a soldier uh, in a lifelong way in, in uh, progressing our national security needs. And, and to help the other side is our economy. We win through a strong economy, and it happens here. And, that, and that's really, it's that simple. Thank you. of the box here. <laughs> so, uh, so the next question is, what are the conditions that enable rapid innovation in defense? What are the roadblocks and what are the solutions? We talk about this, but Lars, what do you think? You know I was picking you again. <laughs> Boy, where do you start? Um, you guys ever see that Looney Tunes cartoon Elmira, she was a little girl that had the little skull and crossbones bow in her hair, and anytime she'd like, you know, lure a whole bunch of little animals over and tell them she loved them and squeeze them and call them George and then squeeze the life out of them over and over again. Um, to be very, very frank, that was my U.S. Air Force. We would say that we would want innovators, but we built this entire roadmap about how to acquire things like aircraft carriers and tanks and airplanes or whatever uh, that was completely and wholly inappropriate for things like big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, man-machine interface, but we built an entire cadre of people that were built to only understand the world from that perspective. And so now when you give them something that changes every six months, it's like a divide by zero error to them and they blow up. They have no idea how to do it. So the short answer, Francesca, is uh, the, the barriers are really immense under the legacy system, right? What you're seeing here, I mean, kernel, 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 um, you know, we're, we're, we're going outside of that system, right? We talked, right, Padre brought up about OTAs. We talked a little bit about that. Um, there's, there's a dramatic shift uh, to be able to get after this stuff in a way that's relevant, right? I mean, you've even seen, uh, like, for instance, if you've heard of colors of money and this is research money and that's operations money, that makes zero sense with respect to software, zero. Uh, so you're going to see some pretty dramatic changes in how that comes down uh, in the next budget, assuming we get one, uh, so <laughs> at some point. So to, for, for all those reasons, right, I mean, th this is why we're trying to get outside of that system. I mean, it's, o it's okay, right, if you're talking about these aircraft carriers that are several billion dollars and you have them for 40 years or whatever, it makes zero sense with respect to the tech that you guys most care about, and so that's why you have these different types of groups going on. I guess I'm next, I assume. It's like us and them <laughs> kind of thing. You see the pattern already. I do. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So obviously, I think foundational, I, I think the, uh, the contracting vehicles, right, is, is a huge barrier. Yeah. We've heard it many, many times. Um, so, so that's like an eye-opening experience. But from, from my own personal experience, again, as I said, I've been out here since 2010. And by that meaning, I got out of the fence, right? I got out from behind the fence and working as a scientist on a base. Um, to Julie's point earlier, the co-location, building these connections, right? The ecosystem itself. I've, I can't speak to Silicon Valley and how well that happens out there, but in Boston it happens, and it's just growing like gangbusters. And again, I think that's kind of the thing. I'm working with folks like Mass Challenge and, and the startup community, having, again, these cross agencies, as long as these two don't go at it, I think we're good with the Air Force <laughs> and the Army, right? Again, and, and having all these conversations and connections and building that true community, I think, is, is really the building block. And then having the infrastructure, such as the appropriate contracting vehicles to support the connections that we end up making at events like these. 
So, so I think um, one of the things is build the network. And um, I think someone who I, I consider a friend and a mentor said the other day, you know, look at two things you can do on the after you do an event or leave here or get up in the morning. Focus on two things that you can actually get done that day. Make a connection, make some type of progress, tweak a, a system, help somebody out, get something done. Two things. Focus on two things. And I think um, that really harkens just to a broad application. So this is going to definitely shock a few people. <laughs> um, so I've been in working in service to the Defense Department for over 30 years, and I think that one of the biggest handicaps to moving faster and being more innovative is the fear we have on the security end of things. We worry so much that our secrets will get out that we don't use Gmail, Google Docs, we don't have Wi-Fi, we can't wear our Fitbits into the room. We, we handicap ourselves with all the modern technologies that everyone else can have. And let's not even talk about DJI phantoms and UAVs and what we can and cannot do. The reality is that we no longer have, I think, a sensible security posture that is appropriate for modern times and modern technology. So if you want to ask me, what can the Defense Department do to be more innovative? Chill a little bit. Take a little bit of risk. <laughs> and oh, by the way, open source is probably even more secure than that, you know, J-Wick, Cipernet thing you think you've got going on. Well, I, I, I totally agree with that. And the, the compare, when somebody asks me about this and how careful we have to be, I always make the example of having food allergy. If you have food allergy, the best, the most secure way not to get sick is stop eating. So that's, a, that's something that we can do. We so, so, but that's, you need that nutrients that for us is innovation, creativity. So you have to take a little risk and be responsible. What can I do and I can't do, but we cannot stop eating, right? No one report that I said that. I'll take ownership because Bernadette's point is spot on. I couldn't agree with her anymore. And what we don't often talk about is this has now become a retention crisis for the Air Force, right? So last September, we brought in our first airman that was not alive when September 11th happened. Spent a whole generation, right? To him, that's old history. But think about that generation as being fully digital, right? Remember the old days where you had to pick up the phone to know who was calling because there's no such thing as calling it? He has no concept of that. And so when we recruit people into the Air Force, this is the life that they know. They have smartwatches, they have phones, and Fitbits, and everything else, completely digital. But when they show up and they join our service, they regress back two or three decades, and that causes so much frictions in terms of doing basic things in your life uh, that it causes people to just want to quit and leave, right? So we, we have a major, major retention problem in our service now, driven largely by this construct that, uh, you know, in your one life, you're Superman, you can have all these digital capabilities, but then when you do your professional job, you're, you're Fred Flintstone. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, thank yeah. you for bringing up that point. That's a spectacularly good point. And I, I want to add one other thing. It's this operational construct, right? So it's, it's a lot about storytelling or looking at where we're going to operate. So the, the next operations are probably going to be in cities, probably, and uh, they're going to be peer-to-peer. And uh, that's, that's nerve-wracking for a lot of people to understand. And casualties will probably be higher. 
and the way that we operate is going to need to change because we've been operating in a certain environment for a long time, probably, you know, 15, 20 years, and that's changing. And we need to get everyone to understand how and where we're going to operate to actually get some of these best-of-breed technologies to make us into that overmatch capability. So, so um, we are all innovators. We like to do things differently. So I'm going to do opposite day. So before starting with a question to the panel, I want to know if the panel had question to the audience. And startups, um, students, large corporation, what do you want to ask them? And then you can pick somebody. And <laughs> you can say, who is in the small business? And then you ask a question. Should we, should we try? Okay. <laughs> I got a question. And we were talking about this the last time we were up here. Um, there's a shift ongoing in the Air Force now. Uh, really, it's Department of Defense, but we're going to try to lead this out in the Air Force. Uh, my prior group uh, under AFWorks, I, I think one of the things that we did really well is that we opened it up to make it easy for small businesses to come work with the Air Force. I think that's their signature. That's what we did re really, really well. The new thing is how do we make it easy for venture capital and private equity right, to do work with the Air Force, particularly when it comes to some of these tough tech areas like quantum, for, for instance, where maybe the business case hasn't been fully quite fleshed out yet, but we see our role in DOD, quite frankly, I don't need to make a business case, right? I mean, again, assuming we get a budget, um, you know, my, my budget comes from taxpayers, so I know it's going to be there next year. So if that's the case, um, we have the ability to put the finger on the scale uh, for tough tech. So the question would be, how do we make that signal loud and clear to, like, the VCs and the, the private equities of the world if there are a couple in the room? I'd love to be able to hear that feedback so that we can feed that directly to SECTA. Any VC here? Really? <laughs> uh, who, who's hiding? <laughs> okay, we, we see what Mass Challenge has to say. So uh, my name is Christian, coming from Mass Challenge. Uh, not speaking for the VC side, but feedback that we've gotten from our founders, the VCs that we work with, is common language. Uh, be able to communicate their needs to you guys but also for you guys to communicate your needs to them and for them to actually understand it without diving into really alphabet uh, acronym soup. Uh -huh. um, and to find that common ground where you guys understand each other's processes, uh, they're educated on which group to go to, which AFWORKS, which DIU, uh, LAS, even your group. Um, how do they get in contact with you? How do they find those tools? How do they find those resources for the people that are gonna support them? from that very beginning interaction where you actually give them the dollars to where they're actually transferring that technology uh, to our warfighters on the front lines. So uh, common language and um, common understanding of processes. Some of the things they want with the, with the current federal acquisition regulations, which would be a guaranteed market, a guaranteed insertion opportunity if product X meets you know, condition Y. Uh, that would help de-risk their investment and uh, unfortunately, we, we can't give them that. That's what they, some of them want that. They would love to do dual use with us, but you know, we can't give them, say, hey, in two years, we guarantee you a, a market size of $50 million. Yeah. Nancy, do you have, Nancy, do you have a, an opinion about it? That's why I'm asking. 
So, so the difference between guarantee and actually understanding the market intimately. So something that you and I talked a lot about is it's not a single customer at the Department of Defense, okay? Understanding that you can have a technology that has a market within that broader industry um, unto itself um, is important, right? Um, oftentimes they're looking at a technology and they're going, okay, but I'm selling it to the defense industry, right? That's one, that's one customer. That's not one customer. That's 60 customers, right? Um, and they each have different needs and different applications and helping to actually understand those applications. And in fact, how those mirror or piggyback into commercial applications as well, right? Because you may be asking for something and they go, well, I don't see where there is a commercial application here. Helping them to understand that is going to be vitally important. And only you're really going to know that, right? You're the customer, you're the end user. So, so let's open to questions to the panel. Hi, my name is Ryan Graves. Uh, I see the Air Force here. I see the Army. Uh, I was in the Navy, but uh, there's no real representation here. So my question is, you know, in these future battles we have, we're going to have to integrate all our forces together in order to achieve our objectives. Um, is there anything that you can speak to that says, hey, the Navy is getting left in the dust in certain areas because they don't have these initiatives where the Air Force, the Army is making that hard push, but we're still going to be at the same disadvantage unless we all work together. Actually, I'd like to tackle that one. I just retired after seven years on the Naval Studies Board, so I spend a lot of time at Fleet Forces and Norfolk and PACOM and talking about significant problems. And I think, uh, no surprise, uh, the Navy is behind the, um, the other services in embracing some of this innovation. There is, in fact, the new announcement of a digital transformation officer just in the last few weeks. Uh, following the chief information officer, the Navy analytics office. So there's attempts at the top to reorganize and restructure to, I think, modernize Navy practices a little bit, but they're absolutely slow to the game. And I think that reflects the fact that the Navy has hundreds of years of tradition. It feels very strongly about preserving. Um, we still call them sailors, and I'm sure you didn't even sail at some <laughs> point, right? <laughs> so, um, all right, there you go. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I think uh, they're getting it. There's a new CNO, a new chief naval officer. Um, I think you'll see some changes in the leadership and whether or not they can um, you know, swallow the pride and adopt and borrow straight from the other services or launch a few new things on their own. I'm, I'm really eager to see. I care quite a bit about that service myself. Um, so I was kind of wondering, um, how do you remain secure but not be in the, you know, the Flintstone age or I guess in the age of like 10 to 20 years from now? Because um, I, I feel like that's a big difficulty that a lot of industries have right now, whether it be Raytheon or BAE. Um, it's really difficult to be, I guess, DFARS compliant if I was to kind of speak to it specifically. but. Um, how do you how do you become secure, but you know, able to kind of work in the current day technologies? So, I, I'd like to give an example, and I think uh, Dr. Walsh uh, pointed this one out. So, 
Um, we have a requirement to do a ballistic shield for an incoming um, target, uh, an incoming uh, activity. So something that's going to hit us, blow up, etc. Okay, so those algorithms we need to keep close and near to our heart and put this big security wrapper on it, etc. So one thing, we couldn't come up with something that's quick enough. So what we did is we worked with uh, Carnegie Mellon and we actually did a challenge that we asked them to develop robots that actually could play soccer. So when they could play soccer, we could actually figure out how fast they could play with the ball, how fast they could defend the ball, how fast they could push around the ball. So those algorithms that they developed over a three-year period were then taken and actually put a, under a, a security wrapper under an ITAR and a SAP facility. But those baseline activities actually and the thought process that went behind it was actually a challenge that was pushed out there. So those are the type of behaviors um, and that, that's on YouTube. You can go and look it up. I'm not telling any classified activities. But we are pushing things like that out there for these challenge spaces that are kind of nondescript, but actually help us get into those ecosystems and that innovative uh, thought process and collaboration space. So one of the reasons why uh, the Secretary of the Air Force put the Artificial Intelligence Accelerator here is because we have our good colleagues across the river at Kessel Run. Uh, so they've, like if AFWorks, if their secret sauce was making it easy for companies to work with the Air Force, I think Kessel Run's contribution to the world was something called continuous authority to operate, uh, which means that we can do DevOps in a way that we've never done before in the Air Force. Uh, and, you know, so long as it fits within these left and right bounds, you can just keep deploying software, keep deploying, keep deploying, keep deploying, right? The uh, way that we would normally certify software for use, if you've seen the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, kind of, I mean, it's a checklist about that long. It takes, I'm not kidding, a year plus to be able to go through that, which in the world of software is ridiculous. So, uh, you know, we, we, we are leveraging kind of what they've done, uh, the Kessel Room for the authority to operate, to be able to get at what you're talking about, which is how do I take the best of breed of what's out in the world and then be able to integrate it on board Kessel Run's pivotal framework and then be able to deploy that very rapidly. And I do have to say the Air Force is ahead of us on this innovation. <laughs> <laughs> Hate to say it, but it's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you. Um, the panel. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And remember that we are all a community, and we're all part of the innovation ecosystem. So I hope that with these events, we keep on collaborating and talking with each other. Thank you. Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.